Social Ventures Australia brings you this podcast from the SVA Quarterly, sharing insights from SVA's work and from across the social sector. Hello, I'm Karen Prout, editor of the SVA Quarterly. In this podcast, we hear from three leaders with experience of creating large-scale impact, both in Australia and overseas in the UK. They share their insights in response to the question, what does it take to create impact at scale? These leaders spoke at SVA's Summit Into Impact at Scale in September 2023. Their responses covered a range of perspectives from dealing with large systemic changes in UK's National Health Service, through place-based community projects across Australia, to working with an Indigenous Women's Entrepreneurship Programme in the Kimberleys. They all provide insights about how to create impact at scale. The discussion was moderated by Susie Riddell, SVA's CEO. It is my very great pleasure to introduce to you our three guests this afternoon. So Matthew Taylor is the Chief Executive of the UK National Health Service Confederation. Matthew has previously held the roles of Chief Advisor for Political Strategy to Tony Blair and he ran the Institute for Public Policy for four years. So bringing a very different international perspective and we're looking forward very much to hear from you Matthew. Christy Muir is here with us on stage. Christy is the CEO of the Paul Ramsey Foundation. She's also a professor of social policy in the business school at the University of New South Wales and the chair of the Alvin Jill Gray Philanthropy Australasia. Great time, Christy. And Cindy Reese Mitchell is also here on stage. Uh, welcome, Cindy. So, Cindy is the program director for Indigenous Women's Entrepreneurship at Good Return and is also an adjunct associate professor at the Canberra Business School. And I'm very lucky that she is also a board director of SBA. So please join me in welcoming our panel. I'm going to start off with Matthew. Matthew, let's start with you. Given your experience with the National Health Service, the NHS, in the UK, how do you come at this question of what it takes to create impact at scale? What I wanted to talk about, and I hope that it, it, it answers that, that question, is why is change difficult? So my background is, uh, I guess I've spent the whole of my career in various ways trying to achieve change as a, a local politician, as a political strategist, as a think tank director, as a director of a royal society, uh, now as the head of an organisation that represents leaders across the health service but also as a writer and a broadcaster. Um, and all those years, I guess, have taught me um, a, a lesson. And that lesson is that achieving change, particularly achieving change when it involves people, trying to change people to some extent, to change what they do or uh, uh, change their attitudes is incredibly difficult. And it fails more often than it succeeds. And this is true of policy, uh, governmental policy, but it's also true of corporate strategy. It's estimated that between two thirds and three quarters of corporate strategies, whether in private sector, third sector, public sector, don't achieve the objectives that are set uh, for them. So I've spent a lot of time uh, thinking about why change is so difficult. 
And I want to suggest that there are two reasons um, that stand out. There are lots of trivial reasons why change goes wrong. People haven't thought it through. They've got the wrong motivations, the timing's wrong, et cetera, et cetera. But there are two, in my view, two recurrent reasons why, why change goes wrong, why we don't achieve what we want to achieve with strategies and policies. The first is complexity. Um, and the point here is that very often what we're trying to do is to achieve change in complex systems. Human systems are complex by their very uh, nature, partly because they're kind of iterative, because human beings aren't passive objects. They respond to changing circumstances. Uh, so human systems are complex. For example, the health service in, in, in England, where I um, uh, operate, is you know incredibly complex. It, it will take a long time to describe, let alone to think about how you change it. But what happens is that what we try to do when we achieve when we pursue change in in complex systems is we try to change one or two variables in that system. And what tends to happen is that when we try to change those one or two variables in the system, the complexity of the system means that other things then start to happen, which we didn't expect, which mean that the impact we're trying to achieve dissipates or sometimes it can even be counterproductive. Uh, so in politics, what I saw over and over again, I also see this in organisations, is that something is initiated. It has some effect when the politicians, the civil servants, the chief executive uh, are behind it. But then after a while, other priorities come along, other issues come along, the focus shifts and then things to revert to how they were before. What you haven't achieved is that system change that you were trying to achieve because you've affected a couple of variables but as i say that effect has become dissipated and lost in the wider complex system that's the first problem the second problem is unpredictability and of course these things are related so the second problem is that when we try to pursue change what has normally happened is we've spent quite a lot of time building support for that so we've developed a proposal we've negotiated it we've uh, agreed what the budget will be it can take years to get an organization, large organizations, uh, governmental bodies to agree to do something. Uh, but if finally you get the agreement and you set sail with the change that you're trying to achieve. And then what happens, of course, is that in, as soon as uh, you make contact with reality, things turn out not to be quite what you thought they were going to be. And then you're faced with a choice. Having spent so long persuading people that you could achieve some change it doesn't quite work out and what then tends to happen in organizations because it's very hard to admit that we've got things wrong and because we're not very agile is we end up trying to prove that what we're doing is right more than actually trying to make it right um, jeff mulgan who i used to work with the number 10 described this as the shift from evidence-based policy making to policy-based evidence uh, making, um, which is something I'm sure uh, you'll recognize. So uh, these two problems, complexity and unpredictability, how do you respond to them? Well, I spent years thinking about this in my previous job and, and applied what I'd learned and, and tried to apply what I learned in my current job. And I came, we came up with a phrase, and I'm sorry that it's a little kind of trite, but, but this phrase does sum up a lot of thinking. We said the way you should think about change is to think like a system and act like an entrepreneur. So what we mean by that is the way to approach change is to try to 
understand that you have to achieve change at a system level if you want that change to be enduring. But that, and this might seem kind of paradoxical because these are two very different, they appear to be two different, very different mindsets. You then have to approach change in a highly opportunistic, agile, adaptive kind of way because the world is so unpredictable. So let me just you know, end these brief opening comments by, by then saying, well, okay, maybe that sounds credible, this idea that we should think like a system and act like an entrepreneur. What is necessary to be able to do that? So I think I'd identify three things which seem to me to be to be critical. The first is to really put time into agreeing a shared viable vision of what your uh, end state is. Where are you trying to get to with the system? How will the system as a whole look and feel? What will its new interdependencies and dynamics be when you've achieved the change that you're trying to achieve? And if you can't vividly credibly describe what this new system will look like, then you probably need to continue uh, to work at it. I'm never sure whether it was Washington or Lincoln who said this, but it's still my favorite quotes. One of them said, if I had seven hours to chop down a tree, I'd spend the first six hours sharpening the ax. And it's the same kind of concept really, which is actually spend a great deal of time thinking about what it is, what this new system will be like. Um, and, and thinking about human motive, human motivation is very important to this as well. You know, we know what human beings are motivated by. They're motivated by three things. They're motivated by authority. They do what they're told. They're motivated by values and belonging. They do what they think is right. And they're motivated by interests, what they think is right for themselves as authors of their own lives. So in this new system you want to create, is, is our human motivations aligned? Is it true that what people are being told, what they believe is right and what they want for themselves go in the same direction. So put in the time to do that and then be willing to return to that vision as things change on a reasonably regular basis. Not every day, you'll go crazy, but you know, every you know, change process, every few months or whatever, go back and say, does that credible vision of the future that we described, does that still pertain? Do we need to think differently about it? That's the first thing. The second thing is to build really deep and strong collaboration between those people, those stakeholders that were involved in delivering the change. And it's particularly important when we're involving a whole different set of agencies, different communities uh, in change. And here, what I would say simply is that we, again, often don't do the groundwork that we need to do. It amazes me, um, uh, I go around and I advise different collaborations in the health service. It amazes me, I can be with people who sat in a room together for years, from time to time, on a committee or a board, they have they do not know each other as human beings. It's quite remarkable. I go in and I do something incredibly simple. I just get them to talk about their life stories. And it's like a, a blossoming because these people who are actually, and when we think about it, when we think about collaboration, what are we asking people to do? We're asking them ultimately to consider the possibility of putting their self-interest and the interest of their organization second behind a shared and collective interest. That is an act of love. That is the kind of thing that friends and family do for each other. Yet we create collaborative structures where we kind of expect strangers to do this for each other. So building really strong relationships and having the right kind of process. I, I, I promise you I've nearly finished this final two points, but the right kind of process just before COVID, I did a session with senior civil servants in Whitehall about this. And I talked about things like a system act like an entrepreneur. And I asked them to go into groups and, and ask them to, to say to me, 
what was the biggest barrier to working in that way and what was the biggest um, enabler of working in that way and they came up with the same answer to both questions and they said process so they said if the process of working together is hierarchical badly facilitated not followed through you know it, it, it makes it almost impossible if on the other hand the process is egalitarian it's well structured there's lots of follow through then a process can enable this kind of working so relationships and process are vital and it is amazing for me how often I go into as I say go into organizations that say or, or alliances that say they want to do something really amazing like to promote, promote collaboration but yet people don't know each other and they haven't really designed very effective processes and then my final point, which is more prosaic, is that you do need, and this is something which is much easier now, you do need really good and continuous data and insight. So if you're pursuing a, a course of change and you want to be agile and responsive, you need to be able to know what's going on as quickly as you possibly can so that you can reflect and that you can learn from this. And as I say, that's a, a great thing, I think, for us change makers, is that it is much more easy now to be able to generate that kind of data and insight, to be able to see what's going on. I think if you go back 30, 40 years, people trying to drive change, one of the big problems was that the feedback process was so slow that it was very difficult to know what was happening until it was too late. So uh, I'll end uh, there and um, I'll be really fascinated to hear what others have to say. Uh, Matthew, thank you so much. And thanks to the tech team for making all of this work as well, because that's not always a guarantee. Um, I have a hypothesis that a few other people felt a bit sort of Wormy when Matthew used the phrase, as soon as you make contact with reality, things don't turn out quite as you expected. I can think of a fairly large list of things that in my professional experience meet that criteria. And uh, the, the insight around the, uh, the crystal clear vision for what the system is transforming into is also one that made me feel a bit naughty, but also uncomfortable. We're going to turn to you, Chris. You've worked across a lot of different domains and sectors here in Australia. And I'm curious about how you think the question of impact at scale and pathways to impact at scale is playing out in our context. And what are some of the conversations that are happening or the, the insights that you think are really at the forefront at the moment? Thanks, Susie. Uh, let me acknowledge the Gable people. I haven't had the opportunity to do that uh, um, and the lands that we're on today. And I want to add to that around the Indigenous knowledge that we have in this country and also then add the knowledge that we have in this room. And across many hats in many of my roles uh, over many um, decades, not going to disclose my age, uh, I have worked with almost everybody in this room and it's not everybody and I know I don't know all of you, but there are some incredible people doing incredible work excuse me, across the ecosystem. And they are doing work around how do you actually scale impact? Some of that is scaling deeply. So how do you actually deeply impact on the lives of five families? Some people are doing that with broad, um, much more broad perspectives. How do you actually scale impact? You know, Leslie Lobel's here and we, she's one of Paris fellows has been doing work around how do we think about, you know, we're in this climate, I was talking to Leslie earlier, we're in this climate where over 20 years ago I wrote one of my first, you know, social research reports on um, digital exclusion. We have not addressed that issue 
and it's getting worse and we have great opportunities around AI, we have great opportunities around ditch tech, all sorts of things, and yet we still have inequities in that space. And so I think what I'm saying is there are incredible leaders here doing incredible work with people, families, communities. Uh, in all sorts of different issue areas. So I feel like in, in this country there are so many amazing leaders doing incredible work and there are other people in this room who are playing connector roles. Uh, we have supported, um, I know that Tamara's here from Uniting, there are examples where we have people who are actually putting individuals in place. Uh, the Hive is an example. There are some really great connectors in places like Logan, in all sorts of different communities where we see place-based work, where we have linkers and connectors who are actually ensuring that, that people can get not just accessible um, things that they might need, and I'm hesitant to say services because that's another conversation we should have, um, but also things are appropriate culturally. Uh, and so I guess there are, um, there are multiple people playing multiple roles including and also the advocacy front um, and actually Health Justice Australia is here as well, I should call them out too, um, Tessa and team have been doing great work and that's really about how do you connect um, different service sectors and think about what people need in different places and spaces. So I guess the answer to that question is I think that there's some incredible work being done across the country and that has evolved and increased over time. I think there's a couple of things that I probably want to point out around where we're at and where we might want to make progress going forward. Voice, choice, accountability. And I've heard this in the tables, reflected in the tables, reflected in some of the conversations that I've heard here today, um, you know, and many of us are here with our yes badges. You know, and that, that voice piece is about how do we listen to First Nations voices, how do we listen to voices of people in communities, how do we listen to voices of people with lived experience who are doing the witnessing, who are living in the moment, or whatever that looks like. Who gets to decide on which voices are listened to? On the measurement accountability front, we heard from Andrew Lee this morning, um, I'm the first person as a professor of social policy to believe in the importance of evidence, but I'm also the first person to say that evidence is never enough. So how do we think about who gets to decide what the metrics are? Who's accountable for what? When we sit with First Nations leaders in communities, one of the first things that I hear is actually um, the, you know, my, you know, my grandson is failing on the education metric in this country, but actually if we measure him on the basis of Indigenous language, culture, dance, and what he's gifting to our community, he will shine every day of the week. So who gets to decide on those accountability pieces? So how do we all do better around voice? How do we do better around choice? And how do we do better around the, the flip side of the, the accountability? And I, I might just finish with a couple of examples on um, coming back to some of the points that Matthew just raised about the, the complexity side of things. I think on the complexity front, we we are starting to get better and we need to start to move into a space of people don't live their lives in silos of individual issue areas. I certainly don't. Um, and I'm not sure who in this, in this room would put up their hand and say, I live my life, you know, in terms of my health issues, my education issues, my whatever it might be. And we all have different kinds of needs and different complexities. And where we're seeing incredible work that's being done is where people are starting to see the nuance of the intersections between things. 
And uh, a couple of examples, I just spent some time last week in Logan, and one of the things we know from evidence base is how important it is to do pre and postnatal interventions with mums and bobs. And what I visited last week were three different examples of maternal hubs. If we look at efficacy on just an evidence and effectiveness and a cost-effectiveness basis, we say, yeah, just put them in the hospital system. But actually, what's happening in Logan and where we're seeing incredible outcomes is the um, maternity hub in one of the culturally diverse settings where people go in and they're actually doing support for all sorts of different, you know, making people from different cultures um, feel much more part of the community. There's much more social connection. They're addressing family and domestic violence. They're addressing education issues, doing all sorts of incredible things. The Pacifica community, we're lucky to hear from Asha, Asha in the Poetry Slam, who is just fabulous, have set up an incredible village where they have a maternity hub there because the Pacifica mums were losing babies at a rate that was way too high in the public hospital system. And the mums are going in there with their kids and they're doing play groups. They've got speech therapists in there. They're connecting together. They're doing morning teas together. And so it's actually far beyond um, a maternity hub, but actually a place where communities can get together and connect. And then finally, the, the First Nations, um, some of the First Nations traditional owners in that community have also set up another version of a maternity hub. And so I think the point about that is, one, how do we listen to people? How do we um, prioritise places? And how do we make sure that we're doing that piece around listening to the voices, providing the choices that matter for the people that matter most within those, and ensuring that the accountability mechanisms that we all set up around how we scale impact in due course, um, whether it's deeply or broadly, uh, is listening to different groups and we're making sure we're doing both top down and bottom up. Thank you, Christy. A really beautiful articulation around who gets to uh, describe what does good look like, what matters to people in the communities, how do they get involved in the design of the work, the delivery of that, the evaluation of it, the storytelling, um, and uh, a great reminder about how much strength there is in this incredible room and across the country. Um, I'm gonna come to you now, Cindy. You have deep experience in, uh, in a particular set of ecosystems, and I'm really interested in you bringing a different perspective about what impact at scale looks like, less from a, you know, how do we create a universal system from a federal government level and, and more in community. So tell us more about that. Thank you so much for the opportunity um, to be here. And, and today we've talked, in the, particularly in the, in the discussion groups, about this, this tension or this uh, difference between scaling up and scaling deep. And um, what I'd like to take this opportunity to do is to um, talk about some work that I'm doing that's about scaling deep, I think. Um, and when I was thinking about what, what could I contribute to this incredible dialogue, I thought um, probably the, the best thing would be the work that I'm doing um, working with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. So I'm wearing a t-shirt and it says, the Magada Makers Business Club. Um, and that's a project that I'm involved in um, that's based in the Kimberley. Um, but you can probably tell by my accent that I'm not uh, from the Kimberley. I'm a settler migrant to Australia. I've lived on Ngunnawal and Nambri country in Canberra for the last 20 years. Um, what might be a little less obvious to you is my background. Um, and I want to share that with you because it influences um, the standpoint that I bring to this work. 
So um, I am African-American. Um, both of my great-grandparents were born into chattel slavery. Um, I also have Creek Indian ancestors who were dispossessed of their lands in what's now called uh, Alabama and Georgia. Uh, and my ancestry also includes white slave owners from England. So I bring all of these, uh, um, I sort of exist in a kaleidoscope of intersections um, <laughs> that I bring to everything that I do, um, and particularly the work that I do with First Australians. So Maki the Makers, this thing that I'm going to tell you about, I need to explain a little bit of the context, um, and this is always what it is about working with uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. But I need to explain, first of all, that it's two things. Um, first of all, it's a collaboration, and it's with um, an organization called Kimberly Digas, which is an indigenous-based business um, based in, uh, in the East Kimberley, and it has at its helm an incredible Jaru woman who actually should be sitting here speaking to you all right now, um, but uh, I'm here instead. Um, so that's one, one partner. Uh, the sort of the Minty Foundation for Leadership is our convening philanthropy. Um, and the DGR Backbone uh, organization is called Good Return, and it's no, mainly known for its work in international development and women's economic inclusion and financial literacy internationally. Um, my role for the last three years has been as an embedded um, PhD student at CSI Swinburne. Um, so I'm literally just a few weeks from submitting my thesis, so if you happen to see any of my supervisors, I am not here. I'm, I'm in the library um, working. So my thesis answers the question, what is Kimberly Aboriginal women's unique venturing process? What are their challenges and motivations? And what are the implications of that process for regional economic development? So that's one thing that Maga the Makers is. It's also a business club, uh, and it has uh, Natasha as its captain, and currently it has about 130 members. These are all Kimberly Aboriginal women um, who are engaged in various sorts of businesses that are grounded in Kimberly's uh, regional cultural economy. And this means that she ventures in two ways. One that is uniquely indigenous, uh, and that relates to her knowledge and relationships, and is governed uh, by Aboriginal law and in the Western way. Um, the problem that we found is that these women's sort of process and the cultural economy are uniquely indigenous and largely unseen and misunderstood by the mainstream economic development ecosystem where hundreds of millions of dollars are spent annually across Northern Australia. So they tend to only see her business in terms of its revenue, um, its number of full-time employees that she employs, et cetera. So the result is a dissonance, right? So we have systems and processes that claim to help Kimberly uh, Indigenous women uh, in business, but it actually triggers trauma, perpetuates deficit narratives about the capacity of Indigenous women in communities. So in July, I moved from um, program um, from researcher, so the low man on the totem pole, to program director at um, Good Return. And now my role is to articulate what's happening in the Kimberley um, and then try to figure out how we could work with indigenous leaders and other communi um, communities to apply it. And you might be wondering, this is great, Cindy. Um, tell me exactly what the unique process is, what's happening in the Kimberley, um, how the club works, what its services are, what its holistic set of invention interventions are so that we can scale it. No, um, I will not tell you. I will not even tell you this evening over drinks. Um, and, and this is because the matriarchs who are connected to our project have asked me not to share this information in settings like these without um, one of my Kimberly co-investigators present. 
Um, there was no way, there's also a particular way that they would like their story to be presented, and it's not possible for me to do that sitting here and sitting on stage. This is not the fault of the organizers, by the way. I'm a last minute ring in for this panel, so I couldn't also get a travel budget for uh, uh, and, uh, Kimberly, Kimberly Knob to come down. But I share this with you because I think it fundamentally illustrates the challenge of scaling impact across indigenous communities and doing it in a way that's consistent with indigenous information sovereignty. Um, the major barrier to impact at scale, um, and I do dis in this um, respect, I have to disagree with my local member, Dr. Andrew Lee. Um, it's not about RCTs, it's about trust. Um, and while we may be uh, tolerated as well-meaning and useful allies um, for MOB, for Indigenous Australians, we are not always trusted. And again, you might be thinking, hey, Cindy, you're one of us. You work for an intermediary that's funded by philanthropy. Yes. Um, and when I took on this role, let me tell you, I was in a bit of a panic. Um, and this is because the sneaky language of replication and scaling up um, and out of the Kimberley had wormed itself insidiously into our collaboration, including, I'm sorry, Christy, in our successful funding application to PRF. Um, and I felt like a homeowner must feel when they see the sort of embers from an approaching wildfire shower down. Um, because first of all, um, and the first thing I started doing was to get the hoses out <laughs> um, and start insisting that we think more carefully about um, explaining our interventions in these new places. So we have amassed all kinds of information, data, resources, and approaches, but only because Kimberly Aboriginal women trusted us to co-design it with them. It will be articulated and shared because I work with amazing, generous matriarchs, but it will be on their terms and in their timing, not mine. So my fear, and this was a real palpable fear when I took this role, was that um, if we persisted with this idea that we were going to scale this on someone else's country without following the proper protocols, we risked burning down this precious thing that we co-created on the ground in the Kimberley. In the same way that there are rules, uh, protocols for welcome to country that we received this morning, there's a way that indigenous knowledges are intended to move across space and over generations. In the Kimberley, this tradition um, of trading and valuables is called Wunam. Um, and for simplicity's sake, think of it like ancient networks of, um, of trading, trading routes that crisscross all over the country. Basically, in short, there's a process, and I'm going to call it a ceremony, for sharing what works in one Aboriginal community and offering it to those with the cultural authority to accept it in another place. So in sum, I've just got four points I want to share um, from this sort of deep exploration of, of, a, of an impact uh, at scale process that's unfolding. Um, first of all, to show that we can be trusted allies, we need to work with our indigenous collaborators how, um, and ask them how and where and when a process that appears to work in one place can be applied in another place. And recognize that this process is labor and it has to be resourced with time and money. And it's not right to ask indigenous leaders to do that sort of consultation for us for free. Second, we'll show that for all the con um, the conditions, uh, we'll show respect for all of the conditions about how and when indigenous knowledges are shared, even when those insights have been purchased um, with philanthropy or government money. We'll recognize that indigenous people are not stakeholders in our initiatives. They are rights holders under the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People. This means that knowledges about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in your programs and interventions does not belong to you, 
and that you know your IP arrangements, our IP arrangements have to reflect that. And then to Christy's point, be careful about the outcomes that we're trying to scale. What is measured in our society is what matters, but when we choose to measure certain outcomes and not others, we control the narrative, and we need to be sure that what um, what they really want, what really matters to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, is actually worth measuring. So, thank you for the opportunity to share. Cindy for bringing quite a different perspective. I love that you exist in a kaleidoscope of intersections. <laughs> Kaleidoscopes are beautiful, um, as, as are you. And I was, uh, I, I was not expecting you to say that you could not share some of, even just a synthesis of the processes because that had, uh, that there wasn't permission to share it from you or in this format. And those sorts of uh, boundaries need to be amplified and shared more often so that that becomes not something that surprises, I don't know, maybe other people weren't surprised, I was surprised that you were going to share more about that. Um, I'm going to come back to you, Matthew. Uh, we've heard quite a lot from both Christy and Cindy about the um, importance of centering people and communities and being able to listen and really empower people around what they want in their lives and respecting uh, culture and their ways. When you look at some of the, well, when I look at some of the roles that you've held, like the looking at the National Health Service or thinking about uh, the entire of the UK government mm -hmm. and some of the political roles that you've had, I, I wonder how you've grappled with that tension between some things do need to be done for everyone, like a healthcare system, and how do we think about the interplay down on the ground in communities and, and how that might play out? It's a very big question, Matthew. Good <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I think that we have to recognise that, that uh, different resources, people have different relationships to different resources. And uh, we, we can't treat everything that we're doing as the same. Um, and so I, you know, I absolutely agree that, for example, when in, in the process I described, when one's thinking about this kind of viable vision for the future, I talked about human motivation. Uh, if your viable vision for the future as a policymaker it is not one which aligns with what people care about, then, you know, it's unlikely to succeed. And I think that, you know, a huge amount of uh, failure, mistake, waste, pain has been caused by people in authority thinking that they know what people want and thinking that they know what people care about. Um, and it's incredibly important, therefore, to go through that process when one's talking about you know, the broad objectives one was trying to achieve. Now, that's not the same, you know, in a health service as the, the fact that, you know, there are variations in the way in which people undertake medical operations and there's strong scientific evidence of the right way to do it. And we should try to get everybody, you know, who's a surgeon to do the right thing, you know. So I guess my point would be that when one thinks about change, one has to recognise that, that, that different types of change require us to think about different models. Um, and what we're talking about primarily here, it seems to me, is social interventions, which, as I said at the beginning, you know, in the end, what we're trying to do here is change which involves people and involves the stuff that people care about. 
Uh, and that's why if you don't engage people as true partners, you're, not, you're unlikely to succeed. So for me, there is a moral requirement that we engage the people whose lives we as policymakers, power holders are trying to shape in a benign way as full partners. We have a moral authority, moral responsibility to do that, but we also have a policymaking responsibility to do that. Because if we are not listening and understanding what matters to people, then we're going to get it wrong because people are not going to react in the way that we think that they're going to uh, react. So I'll just give you one final example of this. You know, it, it, in the health service, for example, there's very often issues around reconfiguring services, which is a very bureaucratic way of talking about, you know, closing hospitals, which may no longer be fit for purpose and concentrating facilities in different kinds of ways. And often populations respond badly to that because something is being taken away from them. Uh, an institution which they feel a deep relationship to is being taken away from them. Now, the response to that is not to say to people, well, you're being stupid, look at the evidence. Uh, the response to that is to try to understand what it is that people value, to explore with people uh, what it is that matters to them. And yes, safe medical procedures and good outcomes matter to people, but so does having resources close to them. So does having people that they have can develop a relationship with matter to them. And if you do that, if you go through that process, what you're likely to end up with is a different kind of idea about what it is you're trying to get to, but one that's more likely to succeed because it's based upon a respect for people and where they come from and what matters to them. Mm. Uh, thank you very much, Matthew. Uh, I think we can all associate with that feeling of things being taken away from you know, something that you've identified with and uh, the many different emotions that that can provoke in an individual and, and in community. Um, Christy, the examples that you gave are sometimes described as bright spots in a system that's not very bright, and they are often described almost with a bit of a hero's journey, you know, great intentions, act two, all the Pixar intervening things that make it hard for the hero, and then ta-da, and Logan together. And that's why I don't write movies with <laughs> But they're described as exceptions. How do you think about you know, these examples? Are they exceptions? Are there things that are, you know, the wind's changing that make these things more likely to happen where people are centred and there's more community? I mean, there's definitely things that we can do where we can take key ingredients. So we're talking about this at our, one of our sub-tables this afternoon where, um, uh, you know, where are the great place-based interventions? You know, we fund um, Justice for Investment. Rob's here, hi Rob. Uh, and talks about how actually, you know, we can take bits of fundamental ingredients of that that's working well and think about which parts of that can be used to, uh, not that you replicate, but you give the ingredients to another community. How would you change those? These are bits at work. How do you take the right Lego pieces, using your analogy, Susie, from earlier, to put them together for that? We're funding a piece of work with Bernie Works at the moment in Tasmania. Bernie's one of the other place-based, um, uh, you know, very, it's been under various iterations of collaborative place-based work for, for well over a decade now and has had some incredible outcomes with community. 
And so we're funding them at the moment to look at what are sort of the eight key frameworks that they could produce to take into other and work alongside other Tasmanian communities where those bits might be useful. So I think there's things that we can do with those kind of um, examples. And then if I zoom up at a bigger macro level, I think that it's really important that we sort of talk about like systems and listening to the language. And you know, I'm, I'm like the first one that's at fault here because I, you know, love a good piece of jargon. But um, I like, you know, I think we need to have a conversation about systems and what we mean by systems and which system we're actually talking about. And a system by definition is just lots of parts all put together that are interrelated. That's all a system is, and there are many different systems. So how do we think about what system we're trying to affect? What feedback loops do we want to shift? And using Peter Sanger's, um, I'm not going to get this quote perfectly right, but you know, one of the simplest things in terms of applying system thinking is finding the levers that are the smallest nudges that can have the biggest impact. And so those nudges can happen at a place, it can happen in regard to a policy change, it can happen in regard to all of the sort of, there are various examples that can be applied to that. So given this, on a helicopter sort of lens, I think there's a couple of things that are worth kind of talking about. One of the things that we're starting to have a conversation about at the Paul Ramsey Foundation is how do we think about funding things in multiple categories? So I think we need to, you know, a lot of this is sort of about the service sector and actually I've spent most of my career asking for money, not giving it away, so it's a bloody joy to be on the other side. But um, there's incredible work going on. So how do we actually think about this as an ecosystem of people together that we, we might shift things? How do we think about the three buckets of work that need attention? One, there's a whole lot of technical things that need to be done, whether that's programs or um, interventions, as Matthew said, or whether that's policy change or regulatory change or legislative change. There's a list of things, whatever the outcome is. The second bucket of work is how do we disrupt resource flows? And that's sort of who we're listening to, who gets to make decisions here, how do fundings flow, who do they flow to, who are they flowing via? Are we doing that direct to community? Are we giving it to, you know, um, one of the community members I met with last week was complaining to me about another white saviour model where somebody else got a whole lot of money and they're getting a small portion of that money now. So the reserves flow is the second bucket. And then I think the third bucket of work, which we've heard about a fair bit today, is how we shift hearts and mindsets. And that piece around actually, you know, until we start to look at um, so in the justice system, until we start to look at that narrative on tough on crime, we can't just take the small... We can't just take that. There's a lot of technical work around... You know, we've got 667 10 to 13-year-olds in jail in this country. Can you believe that? 10 to 13-year-olds. It's appalling. It's like 22 classrooms with primary school kids. Like, in whose universe is that okay? But if we take those three buckets of work, there's a whole lot of technical things around alternatives to, to detention. There's a whole lot of resource flow shifts, and you know, Justice Reinvest is one example of that, and there are many other pieces that we need to think about. And then there's the hearts and minds set shift around that tough on crime narrative. And I could take every single example of every social issue that you know we have in this country and do the same thing. So I think we have to, how do we get sophisticated around Let's think about where the shared purpose is, big picture outcomes are that we want to um, get to with alongside individuals and communities. 
and then start to think about where's the combination of people that can do things in each of those buckets of work and how do we collectively fund and resource and build the capability and capacity to enable those things to have the, the people that actually you know, know what the solutions are, know how to do them and can implement the changes we want to see. That sounds like a world I want to be in. I'm nearly out of time, but I just want to make one point maybe of, of caution and just remind everyone in this room, you probably already know this, but obviously um, Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, and particularly leaders, are engaged in a sovereign nation-building project. Okay. Um, and all of us are called <laughs> in this room to be allies. And one of the things, this has been a great discussion, a fantastic day, um, but this systems level, you have to realize this is the same system <laughs> that dispossessed, that has, you know, that has pushed people down. And now you're saying, now we want you to participate in the system. Like we just need to make sure that we that in our efforts to recreate and that we're not perpetuating the same inequalities and the same leading the same people out and rebuilding this new system that we're trying to build. And so to me, I, I, I just. I'm really, one of the things I really enjoyed today was um, that articulation of the roles. I think it's now incumbent of, of those of us you know, who, who are in this space and who have the time and freedom to think about this, but we need to think about how we're going to bring you know, the leaders, the people that we're working alongside, how we're going to bring those people with us. Supported by the AMP Foundation and the Paul Ramsey Foundation, SVA is investigating one of the biggest challenges in the social sector in Australia, what it takes to create impact at scale. The results will be shared in a paper to be released soon. To access a copy, go to the SVA quarterly for articles on impact at scale, where you can sign up to receive the paper when it's published. Related articles and podcasts can be found on the SVA Quarterly site, www.socialventures.com.au forward slash SVA hyphen quarterly.